Colossians chapter 4. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at some really good instructions regarding how we are to be behaving with one another, how we're to be interacting with one another. We saw how um, Paul back in Colossians 3 verse 12 said that as believers we're to put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, how in verse 13 we're to be bearing with one another and forgiving one another just as, as Jesus himself has forgiven us. So we saw all these great things that we're to be putting on, how we're to be acting around and behaving with one another. And then, and then Paul says, listen, I know it's easy to do that, you know, when you're, not that he says this, this is my view. It's easy to do that when we're coming together on Sundays and we're just kind of brushing by one another. Hey, how you doing? Love you. Have a great week. And it's great to look like we got all these things together. We're very, you know, filled with tender mercies and kindness, all those things. But then Paul takes it a little bit more closer to home where the rubber hits the road. What's these things like really in the home between husbands and wives, between parents and children, and then in the workplace between employers and employees? So Paul in verse 18 down to the end of the, in, in fact, even into verse one, chapter four, he begins to deal with those different relationships that are a little bit more close to home where the rubber hits the road to say, are you, are you living these things out when nobody's really watching? When you think you're in private with you know, those that you might feel at liberty to not be walking in tender mercies and kindness. So Paul lays set out on the horizontal plane where are these things at. But now in chapter four, verse two, where we're gonna pick it up now, Paul begins to direct us not just on the horizontal, but on the vertical plane to say, unless the vertical plane is right and our fellowship with God is intact, those things on the horizontal are, are not gonna always be flowing the way they should be. So Paul begins to direct us now into our time of communion with God. Notice what he says here in verse two of chapter four. He says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. So Paul begins to direct us into prayer because it's through prayer now that we commune with God, that we get to have fellowship with God. This is an extreme privilege that we get to enjoy with the almighty God because he invites us in simply to pray and communicate with, but not just communicate to, but to enjoy fellowship with God. This is a, a remarkable privilege that we as believers get to have because we can easily think, you know, God's just so big. He's got a lot going on, right? We sing, he's got the whole world in his hand. Yes, he's got the whole world in his hand. So how can he ever have time for little old me, right? We can think that way. God's not interested in, in what I'm dealing with. He's got so much on the go and I don't need to pray about these things. But yet God himself invites us in. He says, listen, when you've got troubles, cast your care upon me because I care for you. He says, I want you to bring those things to me. He invites us in because not only does he want us to be fellowshipping with him, he loves to fellowship with us. Do you see the incredible privilege we have that the almighty God over the entire universe cares enough about you and he invites you in to enjoy communion and fellowship with him. And that's what we do in and through prayer. Prayer becomes the avenue just simply for us to meet with God and to spend time with God. This is an extreme blessing that we get to take part in. So Paul says here, continue earnestly in that. 
To continue earnestly suggests it has with it the meaning of doing so with an intensity, be devoted to it. In fact, a lot of newer translations simply say, be devoted to prayer. Let this be something that you're devoted to, not in the sense of, you know, having devotions. Like we kind of feel like, well, this is just something I got to do. It's part of my devotions. I got to read the word. I got to pray. This is not what Paul's talking about. He says, I want you to be devoted to this where there's an intensity and a, a drivenness where you're, you're centering your life really around this. It's like an, an Olympic athlete. Anybody been watching the Olympics? No, I didn't think so, but. Um, <laughs> and so it's like an Olympic athlete that does what? They devote themselves completely to their sport, to their craft, and they, they train hard with an intensity. They will change their, their, their diet. They will change their eating habits. They'll change their sleeping habits. They'll change their, their whole social kind of structure because they say, I've got to really focus on and, and really center my life around this sport right now that I can really be trained up in it. And I got to pursue this earnestly so that I can do well in this. That's kind of the idea. And I, I'm speaking with firsthand experience in this being a former uh, Olympic at least training in that for those of you that have seen some of our YouTube videos uh, not just once but but twice in 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 heavy uh, regiment training for Olympics it it actually didn't go well it failed utterly but it was more because of my partner than it was just with me but <laughs> but you get the idea prayer is to be something that we are earnestly and intently taking part in seeing the importance and value of it. We are to be persistent in it. In fact, Jesus laid out a great parable for us about being persistent in prayer when he talked about a widow. Luke 18, in fact, turn to Luke 18 with me. Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. It's all right, just my Olympic trainer saying, hey man, where have you been? So Luke chapter 18, Jesus gave this great parable about this widow that was persistent. And, and he says here in verse one, then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. So Jesus gives the basis for this. Like this is about praying without losing heart, being persistent in it. And so he goes on to give this parable. Verse two, Jesus said, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. It says in verse six, then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? So this parable lays out for us here the importance of being persistent in prayer. Now this parable though, the point of this parable is not to say how you just need to hound God. You just need to come to him and not relent until he is so weary that he just finally says, you know what, I just to shut you up, I'm gonna give you what you're asking for. That's not the point of this parable. That's not what Jesus is laying out for us. The, the point of this parable, this is an illustration of contrast going from the lesser to the greater. You see what Jesus is showing is if this 
unjust judge who doesn't regard God or man. He's an unjust uh, judge. And if he's willing to give this persistent widow what she's asking, how much more will our good heavenly father give to those that come to him and say, Jesus, you're the one that I look to to help me in my time of need. How much more will our heavenly father Father who is good, come alongside us in that. That's what the lesson is for us. And so we're to be continually coming to the Lord, continuing earnestly in prayer. Again, being persistent in prayer is not trying to twist God's arm to act the way that you want him to, to give you what you're asking for. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying a hold of his willingness. It's not overcoming his reluctance. It's laying a hold of his willingness. You see, what prayer does, and I want you to get this because uh, uh, you can roll with different circles in the church, not in this church, other churches. <laughs> you can roll with different circles that think prayer is about moving God in line with what we want. Prayer is not moving God in line with what we want. Prayer is moving us in line with what God has for us. That's the, the point of prayer. Prayer doesn't always change our circumstances oh there's times it will but prayer more than not changes us and it brings us in line with what god has for us that's the really the point of prayer is not just asking god to do what we're needing or wanting requesting god to to do all these things prayer is simply communing with god seeing the privilege of just meeting with him and spending time in his presence and learning of him i love what cory ten boom says is prayer your steering wheel or is it your spare tire because for a lot of people it's like oh i've just hit a rut i've hit a problem i've come upon some difficult circumstance i guess i better pray pray that god fixes this like a spare tire or is prayer your steering wheel where you're saying i want to be led by prayer i want to be i want my life to be governed around prayer communing with god meeting with him and allowing him just to direct me as i go that's what prayer does through prayer our hearts are being prepared for the answer that god will give us it gets us in harmony with his purposes i hope you recognize that about prayer that prayers prayer yes we we come and we bring needs before the lord he's called us to do that but we leave it there with him and say god your will be done we come and we meet with god and we say lord help me to have my heart changed in these things help me to learn what you have for me in this we oftentimes you know when we come upon difficulty and hardship we're quick to pray lord get me out of this and you've heard me say often what we need to be praying is lord what do you want me to get out of this how do you want to grow me and change me and shape me to be more like you and to be in line with what you have for me in these things that parable ends with that question Will he find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he truly find faith on the earth? Will we remain faithful despite what we experience? Will we continue earnestly in prayer even when things are not unfolding the way that we were wanting them to or hoping them to? When we see prayer as not an act to satisfy our needs, but rather as an act to see God's will done, then our attitude toward prayer and our response out of prayer will become that much more joy-filled because we're able to leave it with the Lord and say, God, it's all for you. Your will be done here.
I love what John Corson says. He says, Father, we say, my finances are low. I need bread. And although he is a father who will indeed provide our daily bread, he also knows bread will not satisfy us ultimately. So he sent his son to be bread for us. I need direction, we pray. I'm the way, Jesus says. I need peace, we cry. You'll find peace in me, Jesus answers. What we think we need is rarely what we pray for. What we need is the Lord himself. And, and, and he goes on to say, prayer is not to get the goods, it's to enjoy the one who is good. Prayer is not to get the gifts, it's to have fellowship with the giver of all gifts. Prayer is not to claim the promises, it's to embrace the person. Everything you crave for is found in the person of Jesus Christ, and you'll discover that to be true if you pray and not lose heart. If you pray and not faint. Now, speaking of not fainting, Paul adds next here, we're looking at three things about prayer in this first verse. Continue understanding it. And then secondly now, be vigilant in it. Be vigilant in it. We're exhorted in the word often to watch and pray. That word vigilant means to, to keep watch, to be alert, or to keep awake, to stay awake. And how we need to stay awake, I, I pray that you're all being very vigilant right now for the next 20 minutes or so. Staying awake here. But that's the idea of being vigilant is that you're, you're staying awake. And so prayer becomes something that allows us to be alert and to stay awake with the things that are going on around us. Because if we're not praying, we, we oftentimes just kind of, you know, walk into that kind of stupor and just kind of are, are, are being led along sometimes by the, by the course of this world. And we're not being watchful or alert or awake to the things that are happening around us. Prayer allows us to, to just be in tune to what God is doing, who God is, and, and what he has in store and how we need to be those that are, are praying for that. And sometimes we just need to be alert while we pray. <laughs> sometimes you know, depending on the time they like to pray, if you're going, I, I, you know what, I haven't prayed today, I'll, I'll pray when I go to bed. Sometimes it's not always the best time to be praying because you'll find yourself not being vigilant, you'll find yourself falling asleep. And that's the great thing about prayer is prayer doesn't have to be done with a certain posture. Sometimes we think, you know, oh, I gotta pray. Well, I'll, I'll find that time where I can just get alone, get on my knees and close my eyes. Prayer doesn't need to be that. It's not about your posture. It's a, about the, the posture of your heart more than anything. And so I find a lot of times, and I've been guilty of this too, when I've been praying, I can easily doze off and get tired if I'm not praying at the right time or in the right way. So what I'll do oftentimes is I'll be walking around. I love to go on a walk and sometimes just even walking in my room while I pray so that I can be alert, so that I can be watchful with my eyes open. You don't have to have your eyes closed. You can be driving in your car, praying, just spending time communing with God. When Paul says, pray without ceasing, this is what we can have is that attitude of just constantly being in that com communion with God. And just speaking with him, whatever you're doing, wherever you are, that's the blessing of prayer. But how prayer leads us now to be all the more alert. Remember when Jesus was going into the Garden of Gethsemane and he calls his disciples to pray. And Jesus went off to pray. And, and Jesus was going through a very intense time, a very difficult time in, in his life there. As he's preparing to go to the cross in just a, a, a number of hours. And it was intense and he goes off and he prays and he's sweating great drops of blood with just the intensity of what was awaiting him. But then he goes back to his disciples and they're all doing what? They're sleeping. And what does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 
uh, 26, he says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Watch and pray. And, and they were led into temptation when the enemy came. See, we too today are not just living in difficult days. We're living in dangerous days where the enemy is on the prowl. And, and the enemy is looking to pick people off that are not alert and prepared. And we find our preparedness in and through prayer, we find ourselves being more alert to the tactics of the enemy as we are spending time with God in prayer. Well, the disciples weren't there. They're sleeping. And so when the enemy did come, I mean, they're ill-prepared for that. Peter's pulling out the sword ready to take heads off and he's sleepy dust in the eyes. He's groggy, he's, not, he's missing. That's a good thing. Just caught the guy's ear, ear comes off. Jesus has to pick it up, put it back on, heal him. It's a great story. But it didn't have to happen that way. If, if Peter was one that was praying and being alert and, and being in tune with, with the Father's heart in these things, are we being vigilant in prayer so we can be alert and awake in what's happening around us? Prayer is necessary for us to be ready to stand guard and to move forward and to move forward according to God's plans and purposes. That's what prayer does for us. And then lastly, number three here, first, continue to in prayer, be vigilant in it. Number two, thirdly, do it with thanksgiving. Do it with thanksgiving. See, prayer is not some kind of spiritual discipline that we do as some sort of test. Like God's not testing you to go, well, I'm gonna give you prayer to just see if you're really walking obedience to me. I'm gonna make sure you're doing this every day. Have you fulfilled your quote? Have you checked off the to-do list? Sometimes we can look at prayer that way. Like this is just my, my duty. This is just my, my routine that I have to fulfill, being a good Christian, and I guess I better pray today. And we can look at it that way where we go, begrudgingly almost sometimes into prayer. But Paul says, do it with thanksgiving. Do it, and, and when we see what God has done for us, we should be filled with that attitude of gratitude that says, I wanna come in the presence of the Lord and just give him thanks for all he's already done because God has sent his son into this world to die on a cross to save you of your sin, to forgive you. He's done that out of his love for you that you could experience life in him today, but the promise of life eternal. He has already done everything he needs to for us to where we should be daily filled with thanksgiving. Not being thankful over just answered prayer, but being thankful for the very fact and truth that he has saved us. And he's preparing a place for us now. Uh, we should be running into the throne room of, of God's grace with thanksgiving because of what he's done for us. I imagine if you were invited in a bucking, you were sent an invitation to Buckingham Palace to have tea with the queen. Wouldn't that be amazing? Would any of you be walking to Buckingham Palace going, man, I can't believe the queen invited me into the, messed up my whole day. I, was, I had other stuff planned. I was going to go hang out with my friends. I was going to go do some stuff. I was going to go watch the movie. And now she's like totally messed it up. Now I have to go see the queen. Oh man, woe is me. Would any of us have that? I don't think so. I think we'd be like, oh my goodness. I get to go to Buckingham Palace. I get to sit down with the queen. It's amazing. I don't even think her son gets to do that. This is amazing. <laughs> this is good. We'd be, we'd be filled with joy and excitement. We'd have a skip in our step going there. How much more should we have that kind of joy, just understanding that we have been invited into and called in Hebrews 4, 16, to come boldly to the throne of grace where we obtain mercy to find help or find grace to help in time of need. 
And may we come and come in the Lord's presence with thanksgiving, being glad. Yes, there might be things that are, are heavy on your heart. So there might be things to leave with him. But be thankful for what he's done for you. Have that attitude of gratitude where you're thankful for the, uh, the, the privilege of just sitting with Almighty God and being in his presence. When we comprehend all that God has done for us and is doing for us, we should be those who can't wait to spend time with him in prayer. We always have something to be thankful for. And don't, don't look at that prayer as, as a burden or duty. Come gladly knowing that we have an audience with the King of Kings. What a joy that is. Now, as Paul writes about the importance and the value of prayer, he now asks for a little bit of that prayer for himself. Look at what he says in verse three. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I'm also in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Now, isn't this great? I like this because Paul doesn't just kind of look at himself as, you know, the, the guru of prayer. Like, hey, everybody, I'm the example of prayer. Just follow my lead. Pray as I pray. He's not saying that, that he's above anybody. He's saying, as much as I'm engaged in prayer, I need prayer myself. And I'm, in, I'm calling upon my friends here to pray for us now, those that were with Paul and around Paul. And he sees the need for it himself as he asks this church in Colossus to be praying for him. But what's really astonishing is the request that Paul makes for this prayer. Because remember, prison epistle, Paul sitting in a prison in Rome. My request to the Colossian church would have been, guys, pray that I get out of this prison. You're not praying good enough. Pray harder that I get out of prison. Pray that I have favor before Nero. But that's not what Paul prays for. Paul's not praying for an open door of the prison cell. He's praying for an open door for the ministry of the word to continue on, for the gospel to go out. That amazes me. See, Paul was not focused on himself. His desire was above personal comfort in that he just wanted more people to hear and know the gospel and to be saved. He wants, as he says, the mystery of Christ to be shared. Now, what is that mystery of Christ? If you haven't been with us through our study through Ephesians and then through the first part of Colossians here, Paul talks a lot about this mystery of Christ in, in Ephesians especially. But the mystery of Christ was not some kind of secret knowledge to kind of, you know, discover, not some riddle that needed to be solved. He speaks about the mystery of Christ as something that was once concealed, hidden in the Old Testament, but now has been made known and revealed in the New Testament and specifically through Jesus Christ. See, in the Old Testament, they never saw and, and even imagined what God was going to be doing in and through Christ. And what Paul reveals as the mystery in, in Ephesians is that he was bringing all people together, Jews and Gentiles together as one body, the family of God, this, this new creation in Christ. Not to say that God is, has replaced Israel, not by any means. We know that God is not done with Israel. God is going to be working with national Israel in a future day. But right now, all people need to experience that forgiveness of sin that Jesus has for them. Jew and Gentile come and approach God in the same means now today. This was something that they never thought of. And not just that, 
that God's bringing people all together as one in Jesus Christ. But now, as Paul says in Colossians 1.27, that Jesus is going to be dwelling in you and is our hope of glory. That was something that, that Old Testament saints could never have dreamt of because they always saw God as like, okay, God's at a distant, he, he will come and he dwell in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or in the temple, but that only the high priest could go into and then only one day of the year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So they never foresaw that the very God would actually be dwelling not just with us, but in us, in and through Jesus Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory, that is amazing. So these are the, the mysteries of Christ that are being unfolded of Paul's teaching. And it's the very mystery of Christ speaking those things that land Paul in prison to begin with. But now he's praying, help me to have, pray for me to have boldness to continue to preach that very thing that got me in prison. This is amazing to me. Because again, Paul's not seeing his life about him. He's not concerned with his circumstances. He's saying, God, use me in these circumstances. And, and, and the, what's, what's crazy is that, remember when Peter got put in prison, the, the early church prayed for him. And Peter was miraculously freed. He goes to the house where they're praying. He's knocking on the door and they're all like, no, it's, it's not Peter. And they're all praying for, yes, Lord, release him. And then Peter shows up. They're like, no, it's, it can't be Peter. It's just his angel or something. They have no faith, but they're still praying. God releases Peter. But now Paul's not being released. He could have been sitting there saying, what's the matter with you, church? The other people prayed for Peter and he got freed. How come it's not working for me? He's not turning this around to make it about him. He's saying, God, use me right where I am. Do a work in me right where I am. And this is how Paul lived his life. His life clearly was not near and dear to himself. He wrote in Acts 20 verse 24 when he was being warned about what was awaiting him in Jerusalem. Paul says this, ah, None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, Paul's life was being lived for the purposes of God and to bring him glory. Paul didn't see his imprisonment as a setback, but rather as another place to simply share the gospel. I think that is so awesome. We don't have to look at our trials or circumstances as setbacks or as punishment. We can look at those as being opportunities to be used to God right then and there. And ultimately, here's the thing, guys, is, is the Lord will oftentimes bring trials into our lives. Why? Because it causes us to be all the more dependent on the Lord and to see Him work and move beyond us. Your life exists for the glory of God. Your life is not your own. That's why Paul could say, I do not consider my life near and dear to myself. I don't, I don't count my life dear to myself. He says, I live for the glory of God, for his purposes. And so if God can use me and do a greater work in and through my trial, then bring it on. That's what Paul's attitude is. Let me live for God and for his glory right here and there. And, and ultimately, it's, it's usually through our difficulty, trials, and adversity that God does a greater work in it because then it's clearly shown to be him that's working when it's beyond us. When we're saying, I can't do anything about this. This is over me, but it allows us to look to God and say, God, you're the one that needs to move in this situation 
and do so for your glory. I love what William Barclay says. He says, when we pray for ourselves and for others, we should not ask release from any task, but rather strength to complete the task which has been given us to do. Prayer should always be for power and seldom for release. For not release, but conquest must be the keynote of the Christian life. That's good. It's about saying, Lord, help me to bear up in these things and live out my life for your glory in and through this. And you'll eventually bring me through it. You'll bring me to the other side. But again, like I said, we don't always have to pray, Lord, get me out of this. We pray, what do you want me to get out of this? What do you want me to learn? How do you want me to grow in and through this? So Paul's desire, again, is that he would, as it, as it now says in verse four, that I might make it manifest as I ought to speak, that I might make that mystery of Christ more clear. That's what that word manifest is. The, the New Living Translation translates it, pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. So Paul's desire is that he might make this all the more known to all people. Make this very clear. So as you're living your life for the Lord, we have a great privilege and opportunity as we're communing with God, but then to be used of God with others, to proclaim the good news and to do so in a way where others will, will really be able to receive it, where we make it clear. In other words, don't be quick to just speak a lot of Christianese to, to people in the world that don't understand it, right? That don't know what you're talking about half the time. Don't go up to somebody and say, have you received Jesus as your vicarious substitute? Have you applied the blood of the lamb to your life? They're gonna be looking at you going, what in the world are you talking about? And they're gonna be running. They're gonna be hightailing it out of there going, this guy's crazy. I don't know what they're talking about. These are things that are gonna cause unbelievers to run away from you rather than stay and listen to what you have to say. Joe Bailey, in his book, I Love to Tell a Story, commented saying this, someone passed the following quotation on to me from a graffiti wall at St. John's University in Minnesota. It said, Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And they replied, you are the eschatological manifestation of the ground of our being, the kerygma in which we find the ultimate meaning of our interpersonal relationships. And Jesus said, what? <laughs> he goes on to say in his book, I like that. I like it because it sets the simplicity of our Lord's words and teaching over against the complexity of some technical expressions of truth. Not that theology is wrong. We need deep thinkers who can explain the ramifications of our faith, but such complexity of ideas belongs in a seminary classroom, not on the hillside where Jesus taught multitudes or in the, in the Sunday school rooms where I teach my classes. Jesus was profound, but simple in expression. To use an old but true way of expressing it, he put the cookies or the bread of life on the lowest shelf where anyone could reach it. And so must we. We need to give the goods, but give it in a way where people are able to receive it and understand it. So Paul's been instructing us in our, in our communication with God. He's instructing us now in our communication with others, but now he shows his concern with what we are communicating to others about God. And whether you tend to agree or not, we all as believers are communicating something about God. Look at what Paul says here in verse five. He says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. We need to be those that are exercising wisdom in how we are conducting ourselves in the world. Because we're leaving a witness in the world 
We're leaving a witness to those who are outside, Paul says. Those that are unbelievers, outside the church is what he means. The question is, what kind of witness are you leaving? Because we're all doing so. Witnessing is not something you do as an event. It's not, it's not a, a, a group you join in an evangelistic outreach. Witnessing is something that we are, simply are. It's, it's how we live our lives. We're all being a witness. The question is, what kind of witness are you being? See, our lives are meant to be winsome and lived in a way where we're drawing those outside the church in. We're either going to be drawing those from outside in or we're going to be <laughs> causing them to run further away. And I know we're living in interesting days where more and more people are, are, are moving further and further away from God to where hearts are being hardened to where there's nothing you can do sometimes to win them over. That just mentioning the name Jesus is just going to cause people to say, nope, I don't want to talk about that. I'm going to shut that down right now. I don't even want to be in a relationship with you any longer. We're living in interesting days where that's happening, but I, I pray that we're not making it easy for them to shut down those conversations, to say, no, I don't want to be in, in fellowship with you any longer. Let us be wise, Paul says, in our walk and in our interactions with the unsaved. You see, knowledge and wisdom are, are very similar, but they're different. Knowledge is about what you know, and wisdom is now the application of what you know. Wisdom is the application of what you know. Many Christians can know great truths, but they have no ability or wisdom to present that or apply that truth now to those who are outside. And, and we think, you know, we just need to go up and just give them the, the, the hard truth. You know, we just need to come up and say, do you know that you're a sinner and you're going to hell? Sometimes we think that's going to be a, a good approach to people. You're going to hell if you don't repent. And people are like, oh my goodness, this guy's not fun to be with, right? I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to lead into a conversation with that. that. At least say that for the second sentence or third sentence or something, but <laughs> it's not the lead in. But no, I mean, we gotta be tactful and walk in wisdom with how we're presenting now the gospel, the good news to people. You know, Jesus was very wise. Jesus didn't just have a, a singular formula that this is the way to talk to all people. He approached people very differently and dealt with them in what they're going through. And he presented the truth in a way that became palpable, interesting to them. Some of them began to see, yeah, that's what I need. And yes, there are people that walked away because it was just too hard to, to fathom. We don't compromise the truth. We're not trying to change things just to you know, make it something that they will receive and water it down. We want them to hear the truth, but we want to give it in a way where they're going to be that much more uh, susceptible and accepting of it. Walk in wisdom about those things. Don't talk down to them. Don't be weird, but be wise. Walk in wisdom. Let's see the hurts and the needs and hopelessness around us and, and choose to find time to bring Jesus to them to where they then find hope and the answers for what they need. Redeeming the time, Paul says. That means to, to buy up. In other words, it's, it's like to buy up every opportunity you have in this world to walk in wisdom. Don't waste time. Redeem the time. Buy up that opportunity. And to buy up means there's, there's a cost with it. There's a sacrifice. There's, 
there's a cost associated with these things because now we understand we're not just living for our own pleasures or pursuits. Again, we're living to make much of Jesus in all situations. And it's not easy. It, it takes effort sometimes to, to you know, work with others, to communicate with others about the gospel and about Jesus Christ. That's, that's difficult at, at times. It's like, it takes us out of our comfort zone. It, it sometimes takes time away from something else that we might want to do for ourselves. But Paul says, redeem the time. Understand the time is short. My friends, do you, do you realize that time is short? I mean, the more things that we see going on, the more it makes it very clear that Jesus is coming soon. I'm so excited about that. But I pray that that drives us all the more to say, I want to redeem the time. I want to walk in wisdom in this world. I don't want to waste any time. I don't want to skip over, you know, being able to talk to people about Jesus. I need, I need prayer for that. Pray for us as, as, as church you know, leadership and pastors. Pray for one another that we're all redeeming the time to say let us not skip over those opportunities. Let us take that time to walk in wisdom and to present the good news just like what Paul is asking prayer for. These days that we're living in are providing much opportunity to redeem the time and walk in wisdom because like I said, many unbelievers are watching things going on in the world around them and, and they're starting to kind of see, man, there's, there's some stuff going on. Their eyes are starting to be opened and, and their eyes are at times being opened to spiritual matters now. And yet in the world, there's hopelessness. There's no answers for them, but we have the hope in Jesus. We have the answers that they're looking for. So may we redeem the time and share that with people. And give them the goods. Let's redeem the time and live in a manner where people are wondering how they too can have what we're having. Let us live that way where they are, are saying, man, there's a peace about that person. There's, there's just that kind of security and, 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 and solace to that person. How, how is that so when everything else seems to be crumbling around us? Let us be living in a way, walking in wisdom where people are going, man, I, I, I want to know more about that. I want to know what's making that person tick. I want to know what, what that hope is that, that seems to be at the core of their being. And the last thing Paul says in verse 6, and we've got to wrap this up. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. All ties in together here. Let your speech always be with grace. Grace is that undeserved favor right? It speaks kindly of people even when they don't deserve it. You know, we're living in a day where there's a lot of, of, of different views, opposing and, and conflicting views, where it's easy as a Christian to go out in the world and, and to begin to get into arguments and begin to debate with people over the things that are going on in the world. And, and we need to be careful. We need our speech to be with grace. You might look at somebody and go, they don't deserve it. But that's what grace is. It's getting what you don't deserve. They may not deserve it, but show grace. Because we've been given great grace in and through Jesus Christ. Talk kindly to people. Don't talk down to them. Don't, don't get in arguments. Very few people are argued into Christianity. Do you know that? Let your speech be with grace but it also be seasoned with salt. What does salt do? Salt adds flavor. It creates a thirst. It, it is a preserving agent. It's a healing agent as well. 
These are all things that, that we get to add and provide in and through our, our very speech. You know, Jesus himself said in Matthew 5 that you are the salt of the world. You are. He didn't say, hey guys, try to be more salty. Try to add this to you. No, he says you are already because we're in Christ. And so we get to live our life in a way where it begins to add a certain flavor. You know, you put a, a steak on the barbie, you, you salt that bad boy up, and it just, it just creates a, a good flavor, right? You add salt, it's good. But then salt, you eat something salty, and what does it also do? It, it, just, it just generates, it, it brings the thirst in you that you didn't realize was there because that saltiness is, is stirring that up. So when we begin to speak in a way with salt where we're adding flavor to conversations, we're starting to stir up a thirst in people where they're going, mm, man, there's something about what you're saying that's just registering with me. And I want to know more about that. That seems very intriguing. It, it starts to stir people up. May your speech be seasoned with salt. May it have an effect. Christians should be able to, you know, leave conversations or sorry, people in the world should be able to leave conversations with Christians better than they were coming into it. We should be adding that to them. Now, how can we be sure that seasoned salty speech is flowing out of our lips by making sure we are knowing what's coming in to our hearts let the word of god paul says in colossians three sixteen, let the word of christ dwell in you richly is the word of god dwelling in you because jesus says in matthew 12 verse 34 for out of the abundance of the heart what happens the mouth speaks what's in your heart is the word of god filling your heart because if the word of god is filling your heart then naturally flowing out is going to be flavorful, salty, thirst-stirring speech. That's what we need to see and have as believers. And the idea of speech being seasoned with salt was connected with wit and charm in your talk as well. I think that's a, a neat kind of component to that. It, it was speech that won people over. It wasn't dull and boring talk. Barclay says... In some people's view, laughter among Christians is almost heresy. You see, we can kind of get in that trap, and some have got a trap where being a Christian means that we got to be holy, and being holy means that we need to be ultra serious, that we can't have any fun, we can't joke around, we got to be very serious and somber, and we just got to, you know, speak with, with, you know, King James language, these and thous, and just, you know, and some people have that view of Christians where they're just stuffy and boring. But Paul says, your speech should be seasoned with salt. In, in, in other words, there should be a, a charm and a wit to it. It should be something that's attractive to people. It's something that's engaging people where they're going, man, I love talking to this person. There's something there about them that just engages me that I, I like. It's stirring up in me something that's causing me to be thirsty for more. We as believers should be having the most fun in the world, not, not fun through the world, but fun in the world because we're not living for this world. We're living beyond this world. And so we should be coming to the table with other people with something that is real about us and genuine that's beyond this world where people are going, and I'm, I'm attracted to that. There's something there about that. Let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt, and then that you might know how you ought to answer each one. May we be prepared to answer each person that we have the opportunity to talk with. And that's going to come again. It's like, it's like Paul is tying this all together here. There's an important idea to connect with the earlier passage of Colossians because Paul spent considerable, considerable time in this letter explaining the truth 
and refuting bad doctrine, yet the, all the correct knowledge was a little good in, unless it was applied in both the prayer closet and the public street of daily life. May we be going to the Lord in prayer. May we be aware of how we're responding to other people. May we be prepared now as we walk in wisdom, redeeming the time, knowing how we can respond and talk to people. Because there's a world out there that is needing answers and hope. And we have that for them. May we be prepared and ready to answer each one. Well, next week, I was, I was planning to try to cover this chapter today. Obviously not. And, and uh, I was going to just kind of rattle through these names. But these names are important. They're, they're there for a reason because God is all about community. God loves family together. And so we're going to take some time next Sunday to finish a chapter and look at all these people that Paul lists, why they're there and what we can learn from them. So we'll finish up this chapter next week. So feel free to read ahead this coming week. Would you stand with me? Worship team, would you come up? And uh, we're going to close with a song. If you have children in Sunday school, would you do me a favor sparing my life by going and picking them up uh, right now? If you can sneak out and go and pick up your kids from Sunday school and thank all those wonderful teachers over there that are blessing our children, keep them all in prayer. And then uh, we're going to just close with a time where we can just respond to the Lord here. Uh, and maybe you, you've been convicted over an area that we've looked at today. Maybe you've been aware of your own witness in the world and how that's an area that you want to see live differently. Maybe your prayer life has been waning and it's time for you to say, yeah, I want to be vigilant in it. I want to continue earnesting these things. Let's take these things to the Lord. Ask Him to lead us. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe you're watching online and, and you come upon us by accident and you've heard these things. Well, we're here because... We love Jesus and because Jesus loved us first. And he showed that by sending his son into the world to die on a cross to forgive us of our sin. We were all separated from God because of our sin. All of us were guilty of that. And yet God did something for us in providing a remedy. Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin that we could be forgiven and brought into a right standing with God. Our standing with God doesn't come through us being good people, living good lives or attending church. It comes through our faith and trust in Jesus Christ who did it all for us. If you haven't received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you today, open your heart to him. Turn from your sin, that means to repent. Walk away from that life of sin and turn to God's way for you, which is life and life eternal. Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. If you've done that today, come and talk to me. I'd love to share more with you. If you've done that and you're online, email our church and uh, we would love to share more with you about that. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word today that we can learn and grow in you and be excited for what you've given us through prayer, through this life, to be a witness for you, God. I pray that we would be those that are communing with you regularly and, and, and enjoying that time, doing it with Thanksgiving because, God, we get to have fellowship with the Almighty God. What a blessing. And then because of that, Lord, may we be walking in wisdom, redeeming the time, living as a greater witness in this world so that we might glorify you and make much of you and see many come to know you. Do that work in our day here, Lord, and through this church and through your people, we pray in your name. Amen.